You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to life. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. As you are turning there, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful to gather together as believers in the Lord Jesus, to come to sing your praises. Lord, as the song said a moment ago, Lord, we need you. Lord, we can do nothing apart from you. God, we need you every hour. And thank you, Lord, for your presence in our lives, for your mercy and your grace. Lord, I pray now, Lord, we, we, we thank you for your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, that we can know you, that we can know how to be saved, that we can know how you want us to live for your glory because you have revealed that to us in the pages of Scripture. Lord, be with us now as we open up your word and, and grow in our knowledge of you and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first off, let me say thank you to you as a church for the love that you showed uh, m- me and my family by proxy. They were not here, but uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, and we're grateful for you um, and all the gifts that you gave. Um, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed, uh, and, and the secret's out, that Jess makes the best cinnamon rolls I think I've ever had. Um, the only complaint that I have is that I've been here since May, and that's the first time I've had them. So you know, what's wrong about that? That's, you know, that's, uh, we've got to talk about that. So, um, no, we're very grateful for all of you and the love that you guys show us. We feel loved and appreciated, and know that is reciprocated. But it was not the case for Charles Simeon in the 1700s. Charles Simeon was a man, he was born in 1759, and at the age of 22, one summer, he preached at St. Edward's Church in Cambridge upon the leaving of their pastor. He was a young preacher, but fantastic preacher, could gather the crowd and, and preached with vibrancy. In November of that year, the pastor of Holy Trinity, Henry Thorond, died. And soon thereafter, the the bishop, James York, appointed the young Simeon as his successor. Now, despite Simeon's giftedness as a young preacher, the people of Holy Trinity Church quickly arose in opposition to the bishop's choice. Their man of choice was the more experienced and politically savvy John Hammond. Now, the bishop would not budge in his selection of Simeon, but neither would the people of the church. So exercising their prerogative as a congregation, the people hired Hammond as their afternoon lecturer. And what happened is, is now just to give you a little bit of history, back then church pews had doors on them that you could uh, lock, you could unlock and lock. They were your pew, you, you paid for that pew. And so if you ever hear in, in, a, in a Baptist church, hey, you're, you're, you're sitting in my pew, well, that actually has some history. You actually did have a pew, but... What happened was, in this particular church, uh, the parishioners who, who owned the pews would, would lock them. And, and, and so that those who wanted to go hear Charles Simeon preach, 
Either Charles Simeon had to pay to rent the pews, or they would just have to stand. They did not want anybody sitting down listening to Charles Simeon. And later on, they, Charles Simeon wanted to have a Sunday evening service. And after multiple attempts to do that, the, the church wardens locked the building altogether so they could not go inside. Now this happened for, for 12 years. And for 12 years, uh, what happened was that this afternoon lecturer, uh, Hammond, left. And the congregation hired another lecturer named Butler Berry. And ultimately, in 1795, the people of Holy Trinity replaced Barry with their pastor of 12 years. Simeon was now the minister of Holy Trinity in name as well as in spirit. More than a decade of deep-seated opposition was over. For 12 years, Charles Simeon experienced opposition from the congregation. Yet he endured. Now, I couldn't imagine being the pastor of a church where they locked me out so I couldn't preach. That would be a little odd, but that's what happened. For 12 years, he endured this opposition. We come to Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 6. Here's Nehemiah, a man called by God to, to lead God's people to restore the broken walls of Jerusalem. Now, remember that this isn't primarily about a building project. This isn't primarily just to rebuild Jerusalem. This is about restoring God's people for their rebellion. And ultimately, it's because this tribe, this, this southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, is where we would get the Messiah. This is not so much about rebuilding a wall, but rebuilding the people of God so that we would get Jesus Christ. It's about rebuilding the kingdom so that we would see Jesus. That is the point of, that is particularly why Israel was chosen, so that we could get the Messiah and have salvation. Let me read the text here and we'll dive in, beginning in, in verse 1. It says, Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up doors in the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Shepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messenger, messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner and I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat sent a servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jer Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying, such things as you are saying have not been done. But you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, man, some of these words are tough, aren't they? Who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God. 
within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. When we look at this passage, now, and going back, we get introduced to Sanballat and Tobiah in chapter 2. They were displeased with Nehemiah that someone was just coming to seek the welfare of Israel. We see them again in chapter 4 where they begin hurling insults and mocking jokes and, and escalating to threatening murder. Now in chapter 5 we get a break from these guys, but internal conflict happens among the people of God. Now Nehemiah navigates the internal division and they continue to build. And in Nehemiah 6, the wall is, is, is practically built, minus a couple of doors and gates. And then in verse 1, we see Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and the rest of their enemies again. And they find out that the wall has been rebuilt. Now, before we get to these guys and, and talk about this passage, I want us to go down to, to, to verse 15. We're not, we're not going to talk about this verse really until next week, but I want us to look at it. Verse 15 here, it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th month of Elul in 52 days. Now, I just want to highlight this for a minute. These guys, these people of Judah, they didn't have education and prior work experience in construction. We saw that in chapter 3, that some of these were, were workers in fine metals. Uh, some of these were, were I mean, they had different occupations. But here, God's people are united in common mission, and the work gets done. And it gets done in 52 days, record timing. As these guys are getting the work done, good things are happening. And then, of course, Sanballat and Tobiah rear their ugly heads. Now, I sometimes like to place myself in the text and kind of like, man, how would I navigate this? And as I'm reading this passage, preparing for the message I, I read Nehemiah 6, verse 1, and I see these dudes' names, and I'm already, I, I don't even know what's, what's happening, but I'm angry. Here they are again. These guys are rearing their ugly heads again. Here they are. We know that these guys do not have good intentions. We have seen them before. Now, I want us to look at a few things here in this passage as we kind of dive in. The first thing is look at verse 2. So we see that they have said, hey, let's have a meeting. And we see their intent. It says, behold, they were planning to harm me. Look down in verse 9. It says, for all of them were trying to frighten us. Thinking we would become discouraged. Look down in verse 13. He, he was hired for this reason that I might become frightened. Look down in verse 14. And Noadiah and the prophetess and the rest of their prophets were trying to frighten me. Do you see a theme here? There is the theme of fear. That they were trying to frighten 
Nehemiah and the people of God and attempts to discourage them from finishing the work. And we've seen them try a lot of other strategies, from mocking, from insulting, and even threatening to kill them. And that has not worked, so now they are simply trying to scare them out of obedience to the mission that God had called them to do. The main point of this passage here is that we must not allow opposition to frighten and discourage us, but we must be faithful to the mission. And the first point I'd like us to make from the text here is that in order to walk in faithfulness and not fear, we must not be distracted from God's mission. As this story goes, we see these men show up, Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and, and they hear of this report that the gates are, I mean, the walls mostly rebuilt. And they send a message saying, hey, come let us meet together. Let's have a, let's have a, let's have a meeting. And we don't really get any details of what they were wanting to talk about or whatnot. But, but the, the text says that Nehemiah says they, they were intending to harm me. Now, I don't think Nehemiah had some sort of prophetic knowledge that this was going to happen. Um, and maybe he's writing afterwards. Maybe he found out that this was their purpose. But I think Nehemiah just knows these guys. And Nehemiah knows that their intent from, from beginning is not good. And, and I'm not going to be distracted with, with their, their foolery. I, I, I know them, I know what their, what their desire is, and I am not going to be distracted. And, and so he says, as, as they come, it says there in verse 3, he says he sends messengers. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Here again, we kind of see what kind of leader Nehemiah is. He's in the midst of the people working. And he, he understands that their intent is to distract him. But he is laser focused on the mission that God has called him to do. And notice, notice why he's focused on this. Notice why he doesn't get distracted. It says here, the work is great. I'm doing a great work. Well, the, the, the rebuilding of a wall isn't really that great. It's what it signifies, that we are restoring God's people. We're restoring the kingdom of God from their disobedience. I'm doing a great work. I, I, can't, I can't stop. I, I can't come to this meeting. And he won't because he knows what's going to happen. Well, it doesn't stop Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem from trying again. It says in verse 4, they sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Nehemiah will not be distracted. Nehemiah will not stop working on the wall. He values the work because of what it signifies that God's people are being restored to God's kingdom. And he will not back down. He will not be distracted. There's a uh, story involving Yogi Berra, well-known catcher for the New York Yankees, and Hank Aaron who at the time was the chief power hitter for the Milwaukee Braves. The teams were playing in the World Series, and as usual, Yogi was keeping up his, his chatter. He, he would often try to pep up his teammates on the one hand and d distract the, other, the opposition on the, on the other hand. As Hank Aaron comes to the plate, Yogi, in trying to distract him, says, Henry, that's Hank's actual name, you're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark. 
Hank Aaron didn't say anything, but when the next pitch came, he hit, he hit the ball into the left field bleachers. After rounding the bases and tagging up home plate, Aaron looked at Yogi Berra and said, I didn't come up here to read. <laughs> Hank Aaron wasn't going to be distracted. He came to hit a home run, and that's what he did. And Nehemiah as well in our text, is it going to be distracted? You know, I've, I've, I've shared this with some people, but, but I, for all of my life, I've struggled with, with ADD and just having focus. And, and, uh, and maybe when I was younger in middle school, it was ADHD, but as I near 40, that hyperactive part isn't really uh, there anymore. Now that, that's gone away. But I still struggle with having a, a focused attention. It's actually ironic that the Lord called me to preach because for me, and maybe for you it's the same way, it's very hard for me to sit through a sermon and listen and engage. My, my mind wonders. Yeah, I, I could be listening to someone speak and preach, and my mind's starting to think about something else. If you're doing that right now, okay, you can stop and focus like I need to. It's a struggle in prayer. I, I'm often praying to the Lord, and then maybe, okay, what's for lunch later on? It is, it is hard to focus. And I, I love to read, and, and, I, and I read books, and I'll, I'll start a book, and then something else pops into my mind, another topic that I want to read about, so I go start opening another book. I put the bookmark in there, and then I, I want to explore something else, and then all of a sudden I've got 37 unread books with bookmarks in them that I haven't finished a single one. It's, it's a problem of, of being distracted. Now, Nehemiah didn't struggle with that. He was focused. He was determined, and he wasn't going to be distracted from what God was calling him to do. Now, listen, we may not be building a wall, but we're in the same work as Nehemiah as building God's kingdom. Ours isn't through rebuilding a city or a temple or a wall, but our responsibility as we build the kingdom of God is through making disciples of all nations through the proclamation of the gospel. Now listen, even if we don't have a Sanballat or a Tobiah trying to distract us, there are many good things in our lives that are not the ultimate thing. I mean, I, I want to tell you that Sunday night after our prayer time together, I was more encouraged than ever. I heard people praying for lost people. I heard people praying for believers going through difficult times to seek the Lord and depend on Him. What I heard Sunday night was a group of believers laser focused on the mission that God has called us to do and pleading for God to work. In the realm of the Great Commission, God has called you to specifically reach people within your sphere of influence. Even if you're wondering what that is, and maybe you can't come up with it, start somewhere. Think of one person in your life who you know is lost. Maybe you've been afraid to talk to that person. Maybe you're nervous to share Christ with them. And we may know one person we need to share the gospel with. We may know exactly what God has called us to do, but we easily allow other distractions in our life to keep us from obe obedience. Church, there, there's always something that demands our attention, always some, someone who needs help, always something at home that needs to be cleaned, always somewhere where you need to go or an errand to run. There's always something to do. 
And these things that keep us busy can quickly keep us from doing the ultimate thing that God has commanded us to do. So think about that one person that may be in your mind right now that doesn't know the Lord. And if they're local, give that person a call. Set up a coffee date or lunch or invite them over for dinner. Find out where they are with the Lord and share the gospel with them. Maybe it's a family member. or Maybe it's the store clerk. Maybe it's a neighbor. But don't let worldly distractions keep you from obedience to the Great Commission. Maybe they're not local. Maybe it's a friend that you know, a family member that lives in another state. Well, give them a phone call. Give them a phone call and say, man, I, I just really need to share this with you. If we're going to be obedient, then we have to do so with intentionality and not be distracted. Nehemiah didn't let distraction get at him because he saw the value of the work. This work is great. Man, what work is greater than sharing Jesus Christ with those who don't know him? May we be faithful and not be distracted. Number two, in order to walk in faithfulness and not fear, we must humbly depend on God. And after this fourth time of rejection, they weren't satisfied, so they sent a letter to him this fifth time they come to him. And it has all kinds of false accusations in it. He says it's reported that the reason you're rebuilding is because you plan to rebel. Well, that's, that's not true. That's, that's not their intent. And we know that's not true. He says, oh, on, on top of that, you want to be their king. But no, that's not true either. And because you want to be the king, we've heard that uh, you, have, you have appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you that a king is in Judah. What, what would happen if someone did want to be king? They would appoint prophets, essentially, as their campaign managers say, hey, we've got a new king. This is going to be our king. Well, none of those things are true about Nehemiah or the people of Judah. And it says here in the text, he says, it says right here, he sends a message in verse 8. He says, such thing as you were saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. Criticism and false accusations are tough. It's hard to shake off. Even when you know the truth, when people begin spreading rumors and lies, it's terrible. This is why even in 1 Timothy 5, as, as we, we talk about elders, it says, Do not receive, receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis or two or three witnesses. Uh, that, that, that passage tells me that although it's hard to fathom, there are people that will make false accusations. Against the people of God, and man, that is hard to endure. I think I'd rather someone just punch me in the face than to sp say something untrue about me. My mom used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Now, I love my mom, but that's a lie. Words have the power to hurt. Untrue words can te tear down a minister of the gospel. Turn, turn with me to the New Testament in James chapter 3. James chapter 3. 
in James 3, he, he begins to talk about how teachers, because they, they use words and they teach with words, they will be held by a stricter judgment because words have power. And then down in James 3, in the second half of verse 5, it says, And so also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets, the fire, sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. It says, for every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. As Nehemiah hears these rumors, he certainly he's baffled because none of those things are true. But he, but he understands the reason why. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it, and it will not be done. False accusations certainly can be discouraging. They're tough to deal with. But look what Nehemiah does. He doesn't stop working. He doesn't go get even and say something untrue about Sambalad and Tobiah. It says there in verse 9 at the end, But now, O God, strengthen my hands. What Nehemiah does is pray. In praying for his hands to be strengthened, he's also praying for his heart to be strengthened as well. God, help me to endure these attacks and depend on your strength to get through. In Numbers 16, we see Moses and Aaron as targets of unjust criticism as well. A man named Korah and his cohorts rose up in opposition to Moses and Aaron, stating things that were blatantly false. It was such a discouraging criticism that in verse 4 it says, Moses heard this and he fell on his face. In verse 15, we see Moses angry at the opposition, but he takes his anger to the Lord in, in prayer. And the Lord answers the prayer of Moses and Aaron. Dear church, criticism and false accusations are par for the course for God's people. We see it all throughout Scripture. This can be extremely discouraging and deflating. Now, there are two pitfalls we see in dealing with criticism or dis discouraging words, false accusations. The, 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 the first one is what I would call the Eeyore complex. Anybody know who Eeyore is and Winnie the Pooh? Right? If, if you don't, go watch some cartoons. It's okay. It's the donkey. And Eeyore's always down. He's always just never has a positive attitude about himself. Always thinks the worst about himself. Someone who has the Eeyore complex, when criticism comes, they just are prone to believe it. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm terrible. I'm awful. And, and just always down and discouraged and, and can't seem to move on. The very thing that they were trying to get Nehemiah and his people to be like. The, uh, the other pitfall is to, is to think that, man, th this criticism can't be true because I'm so awesome. 
man, who, are, who do you think you are criticizing me or, or saying that? You have no clue who you're talking to. And then coming with something worse about that other person. And these are two pitfalls that we have to avoid. Charles Spurgeon said this, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have a moral portrait painted, and it is ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches, and it would be steer nailed near the truth. We are a sinful people. People may say things bad about us, but the Word of God tells us that prior to Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are, by our nature, walking according to the prince and power of the air. What can be worse than that? What can be worse than of God's pronouncement on us before we met Jesus? Nothing. Joel Beek, prominent pastor and, and author, shared a story in, in a book that he wrote where it says, One time he had an elder in the church who strongly opposed his preaching and began spreading rumors about him that was severely damaging and spreading through other denominational churches. And when that had happened, he was pacing back and forth in anger in his office, and he pulled a book off his bookshelf and read something like this. He said, if you ever felt angry when a false rumor was spread about you by a critic, stop and consider. You really ought to be praising God that your enemy doesn't know how bad you really are. In fact, the rumor is not as bad as who you are in the depths of your heart. Listen, what is worse that can be said about any one of us? That we were sinners deserving of an eternity in hell. Yet God has already remedied that problem with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what other darts can be hurled at you that's worse than that that Christ has already solved? Words can be hurtful. But when those words come, we must pray to God to strengthen us for the work that he's called us to do. Don't let false accusation and criticism keep you from being faithful to what God has called you to do. When you get criticized, what's your natural tendency? To believe the criticism and have an Eeyore complex and get discouraged or to think too highly of yourself and get angry when criticized? Neither response is biblical or right, but we must go to the Lord and pray for strength. Number three, in order to walk in faithfulness, and not fear, we must discern truth from error. And it doesn't seem like Nehemiah can catch a break at all. He deals with this Sanballat Tobiah issue. Well, he's not really done with them. He enters the house of this guy named Shemaiah. And Shemaiah seems to be some sort of prophet based on what it says in verse 14. And I'm, I'm not going to read those words again, who he's the son of. You can read that. I'm not going to botch those again. 
But this guy says he was confined at home. Not, we don't know why he was confined to his house, but, but uh, Nehemiah goes to the home. And then the guy says, let us meet together in the house of God, in, in the temple. It says, within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple. For they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. Now, at first glance, this looks like a good thing. Hey, Nehemiah, they're after you. They are coming to kill you. Well, that's believable. They've already tried that. Hey, let's find a safe place. And the only really safe place right now is the temple. Let's go in the temple for your safety and close the doors. But Nehemiah perceives that they are not of God. Verse 11, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I, I will not go in. See, Nehemiah knew the word of God. Nehemiah was discerning and could discern what was really happening here. Yeah, this seems like this guy's trying to be concerned for my safety, but he's telling me, someone who's not a priest, to go into the temple. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, the only people that could enter into the temple building were priests. Anybody could, in the temple, if, if we had a picture of the temple, you would have, you would have a, a courtyard, an outer courtyard where, where Gentiles could be in that, in that outer courtyard. And then there'd be like another fenced-in area beyond that, and there'd be another courtyard, and that would be the court of women. And so uh, the, the Jewish women could enter that, that court of women. The Gentiles couldn't go any further. And beyond that, the men could enter, but then only priests could actually enter the temple. And even then, there was a, a portion of the temple where only the chief priests were allowed to go in. So there's this hierarchy of who could get closer into the temple. Well, Nehemiah wasn't a priest. He didn't belong in the temple. This is not okay. And look at verse 13. Verse 12, he says, I, I perceived, I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Well, that's who's behind all of this. We've, that's not surprising. He says, he was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin. Because it would have been sin to him to enter the temple. so that they might have an evil report in order they may reproach me. They, they weren't concerned for Nehemiah's safety. They were trying to trap him. Oh, Nehemiah, just go in the temple. You'll be safe there. No, he is not allowed to be in there. According to the law, they were trying to trap him. And we see that this is what the Pharisees tried to do with Jesus, is tried to trap Jesus. And Nehemiah discerned that this was not from God. It was contrary to God's word. He realizes who's behind it after all. And he was able to be discerning because he knew the word. He knew that he was not allowed to go in the temple. This is why, church, we have to know our Bibles. If, it, if someone ever said to us, well, I believe God wants you to do X. Well, what does the Bible say? We've got to be discerning. 
Now, God doesn't speak in an audible voice, but, but, I, but I do believe that the Spirit works in our hearts at some level to, to give us certain impressions. Or, but if someone approached you and, and, and said, hey, brother, I, the Lord's really just put this on my heart that, you know, you need to consider being a, an elder or a deacon. Well, that's good, but that's, that's a lot different than, than, hey, God told me you're going to be an elder. God told me you're going to be a deacon. Hey, God told me X. Well, that's all well and good, but what does the scripture say? What does the Bible say? There was a, a pastor in Georgia. I heard on occasion, and he shared the story. His wife had, had passed away of cancer, and, and, and so he was a a single pastor, not by his, his choice, and his wife had passed away, but um, this woman comes into his office, says, I believe God wants us to get married. He says, well, there's a couple of problems with that. The first, God hasn't told me that, and the second problem is your husband, She was still married. This was a problem. And he got out of there. He said, I got out of my office as quick as I could because this was not a good situation. And Nehemiah was discerning. He could tell that something was stirring in the pot. So these were, they were hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin. They were trying to get him to sin so they could trap him and apparently there were others that were seeming to do this as it says there in verse 14 remember oh my god tobiah and sanballat according to these works of theirs again he's praying for their for judge, god's judgment to be built upon them and also he says noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me there were others obviously trying to get after him and, and, and seeking to cause fear to swell up in his life and the lives of those rebuilding the wall. But he, would, he wouldn't be frightened. He would be faithful to the mission that God called him to. Men and women, we don't need to live in fear when opposition arises. But we need to live with discernment on how to navigate these things. This statement that seemed to be for Nehemiah's good and for his safety was actually a trap to lead him to fear and therefore sin. Now, I'm sure we've all heard the phrase, faith over fear, right? That kind of became popular after the, the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, coronavirus and, and, and churches shutting down. Now, there may be varying opinions on how COVID-19 was handled or should have been handled or you should have done this or you should have done that. And I mean, I, I've, I've shared before, I, was like, I, I, feel, I, I felt terrible just for your former pastor, a, a new pastor right out of seminary, now dealing with a worldwide pandemic. Well, you know, he, he, he should have done this or maybe he shouldn't have done that. And not even the most seasoned pastor knew how to navigate those issues that was a difficult time 
But I think what the pandemic showed us, that at large, we can easily let fear keep us from obedience to God's word. I believe in our culture, we're going to see more attempts at persecution and silencing the church. We've already seen persecution on business owners for refusing service to couples pursuing homosexual marriage because it goes against their religious beliefs. I don't believe it's going to be very long before the government starts coming after pastors and churches. There are things that could cause us to fear and shrink back from faithfulness to God. But dear church, we will not allow fear to be in the driver's seat of our lives. But we will use discernment and remain faithful to the mission that God has called us to. And dear church, we are called to the mission of kingdom restoration as well. We aren't doing that through rebuilding walls, but through gospel proclamation. And as I read this book of Nehemiah, I get frustrated every time I see Sanballat and Tobiah rear their ugly heads. Nehemiah is continuously facing opposition, but he's determined to keep working because he sees the value of the work and he won't be distracted. Even as he fights these false accusations and words do hurt, he prays for God's strength to keep going. And as another threat comes again, he uses discernment and knows that what is being asked is contrary to God's word. Dear church, all of this requires us to be in constant dependence upon God, seeking to be faithful to his mission and not allowing anything to keep us from faithfulness. Now, I've been encouraged. I know that this church has gone through quite a bit over the last couple of years, and I believe that we're enjoying a season of relative peace and unity, and things are going quite well. But I don't want us to be naive. What we see in Nehemiah seems to be a pattern. When things start going well, problems are on the horizon. We need to be wise and discerning in what's a real issue that needs to be addressed or what something is that's seeking to distract us from faithfulness. We see this constant theme of they were trying to frighten me, they were trying to frighten me, they were trying to frighten me, to discourage me, to keep us from the work. Dear church, May we not be frightened by opposition, but may we remain faithful to the mission that God has called us to. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And God, you are faithful to us. You are faithful to us in sending the promised Messiah and the person of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And all through Scripture, we see this opposition to you and your people. God, we can see opposition to the church today. Through worldly ideologies and governments trying to keep us silent, to keep, or to cause us to bend and to soften the truth, to preach something else. May God, may you allow us to not back down in fear, but to depend on you be faithful to the mission that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.